Welcome to Sigma Sports Presents Matt Stevens Unplugged. And we have a very special episode today as I'm joined by Pippa York to chat about her BYOC policy, that's bring your own chain ring, whether eggs belong in soup, and how she's taking Pride Month online. The grand chores is back, and this week I'm making the bed. Stay tuned because you don't want to miss that. Hello, and welcome. Are you ready? Proven to save between 2 and 5 watts, the combination of Ceramic Speed's OSPW system and UFO chain make for one of the fastest drivetrains on the market. Throughout June, order an OSPW system at Sigma Sports and get a free UFO chain. There's never been a better time to upgrade to ultimate performance. Find out more about this offer on the podcast page at sigmasports.com. Philippa York is one of the most successful British riders of her era. Anna Palmares, competing as Robert Miller, are hugely impressive. Top results include the polka dot jersey at the 1984 Tour de France and narrowly missing out on the GC at the Vuelta Espana in 1985 which many consider to have been stolen from her controversially. I know Pippa very well, and it was an absolute pleasure to catch up with her recently, even if she didn't know what frazzles were. Well, that's a shame. I was enjoying Paw Patrol. Yeah. Uh, Have you ever watched Paw Patrol, Pippa? No, but I'm just going to look it up now. It's it's something, it's pretty sensational, apparently. Um, Before you came on, Niall was saying that um, each each series gets even more bizarre, and now they've all got jetpacks. But they're basically, they're a group of animals who inhabit this town, but they're all, they all work for the emergency services. So like fire brigade, ambulance, police officers, stuff like that. So, you know. Yeah, yeah I'm just in there now. <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do love the internet. It's, it's great, isn't it? And it, it's brilliant though. That it, it's, you know, we're here on a podcast in lockdown. Um, we had a kid on, on the line earlier, Nile, the producer, and now Pippa York is is looking up Paw Patrol and it's going to enhance your life for the better, I think. And now I know what Paw Patrol is. <laughs> uh, apparently it's, it's, a, it's a massive, it's a, it's a big deal apparently when you see kids walking around with little backpacks and packed lunch boxes. It is a bit of a big deal. So um, so there you go. We've both learned something. Well, you have... Um, six, six brave puppies and a tech-savvy 10-year-old boy called Ryder. <laughs> <laughs> well, Pippa, welcome to Matt Stevens Unplugged. Thanks very much for joining us. It's um, it's an absolute pleasure because this is the first time we've kind of well we did we did a thing a couple of years ago I didn't we but this is the first time we've ever done a podcast together. Yes, and, um, it is it is a pleasure. But for the for the benefit of the of our audience, could you just tell us where you are in the world and what is immediately surrounding you so people can really set the scene? So I live in a little village in Dorset, and when I look out the window, I can see greenery and trees and it's right next door to the um sustrums cycle route number two and when i look oh out the back window i can't see anything beyond the pear tree which is as thick as uh an afro hairstyle almost it's that crazy right so um i see i see countryside when i look out the windows mostly very very nice it's, it's it's beautiful dorset though isn't it it's a lovely lovely part of the world i guess it i guess well not i guess because i've spoken to you before about it it's quite a sleepy little place isn't it yes that's why i live here yeah <laughs> nice, <laughs> no, nice and quiet no, that's nice exactly quiet. why i live here there's something like oh, i think what is it three hundred and fifty thousand people in the whole of dorset so there's 
outside of the two main towns, which are Bournemouth and Pro, which are just basically one town, really. Yeah. Um, so 350,000 people is, what, a small town near London? So there's not that many people. It's quite, it's quite sleepy, like you say. Very, very nice. Now, how first off the bat, how is lockdown been treating you? Or have you kind of, I mean, what, what's, what's your kind of state of mind at the moment? Probably I'm a bit bored. At first it was weird because when you went outside, there was nobody in the streets. Yeah. So it was like being a 1960s zombie movie. Yes. <laughs> nobody yeah. about. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then when I started going cycling, because obviously I've got nothing to do, um, yeah, it's like going training and going riding in Scotland where there's nobody about and you could ride for half an hour before you saw a car. Yeah. But now it's got, I've kind of got used to it and there's more people about. So, um, yeah, it's a bit of a shame that people have reappeared on the on the streets and on the roads. Oh, it's a funny, yeah, it's a funny cat. <laughs> oh, what's the cat called? Um, oh, wow, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty, uh, pretty that's loud. Authentic. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, it's interesting. A moment ago, you said you you live near one of the Sustrans trails, and um, I know when we spoke up, you know, a couple of years ago, you weren't really riding a bike that much. But it appears that you, and I know you you've hopped on Zwift recently, different kind of bike racing it in, entirely, and we do follow each other on Zwift. Um, but I, so you are you enjoying getting back into riding? How are you kind of finding it? I don't. I, d- I did stop for two and a bit years, um, cool. yeah. quite a lot. So I've re re had to re-establish what my kind of baseline level of um, speed and fitness is. Yeah. According to my age and gender and all the rest of it. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, so um, I don't go very far and I don't feel that I go very fast. So when people pass me, which they do nowadays, yep. um, I'm not that bothered about it. I don't go training. I go for a ride, which is a different kind of mindset than it was when I was racing. So um, yeah. I just kind of – I don't bumble along. I try to go a decent speed to, so I don't feel like I'm struggling. But now and again, yeah. I do struggle, so I – but that's okay. I, I get, I've got used to that now. Yeah. And um, so I probably – before Swift, which is another um, story altogether, I'd probably ride three times a week. And okay. before lockdown, and that would be an hour, an hour and a half maximum. Right. Okay. With the road so empty, and and I can go on roads which I wouldn't have went on before to go places which I didn't go to before. Um, I've been going two hours, two and a half hours, which is a long way for me. So then I have to take food because I don't have the reserves to ride. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have the same. I don't have the same capacities to ride that far without food. So then of I have course. to take food. So that's kind of changed everything. And I have to. I have to stop and get water and stuff like that. So um, yeah, it's a bit different. From, it's not. It's not training. It's definitely not training. It's just yeah. riding along. No, I'm just saying. Um, <clears throat> I, I still train a bit, but I also ride my bike, and I said they're quite a different thing. And um, I get overtaken. And when when I was in a reasonable bike rider getting overtaken was it didn't really happen very often i guess and um you take umbrage and you just attack them and you'd get you'd go back over the top but now it's, it's quite a liberating feeling knowing you're just riding your bike and enjoying it and soaking in the atmosphere rather than making rather than feeling perpetual pain because most training rides really are, are remarkably uncomfortable aren't they um but just riding your bike now for me it i actually enjoy riding you know, more than I ever have, because I can turn it on if I want to go a bit hard, but generally I just bumble around, you know, and, and I find it 
really pleasurable. Well, before you choose, you could choose when you when you started hurting. So it's the speed of the of the ter- which you went over things or along things at which hurt you. It wasn't yeah. the, the basic kind of topography that that did that. But nowadays, um, for me anyway, hills hurt, so I go slower. So yeah. they don't hurt, <laughs> and then I've, disco- <laughs> then I've discovered that you need all the gears on your bike exactly. because that's the otherwise it hurts, and that wouldn't have been the case before. I would have looked at a hill and thought I'll use that gear and I'd ride up at that um, on a certain gear and probably not bother changing it if it got too big and just cope with that level of pain. Well, nowadays I don't ha- I don't want that level of pain, so yeah. then I use all the gears. Um, but yeah, if people catch me, I don't really care if i catch other people i don't really care it's it's it's, it's funny there's uh, people get seemed I, I mean i'm just looking at twitter sometimes and i probably get too immersed now i don't normally interact that much but seeing people getting very very angry about being caught and overtaken and the abuse people get especially women who might overtake a bloke and then the bloke overtakes them and, and sort of starts calling them out i mean it's a really weird strange <laughs> kind of psychology and i'm i'm, I'm bemused by it i mean um yeah, it's 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 very very strange. I mean, just just actually one thing that I wanted to ask you back when you were competing as Robert Miller. We're talking about gears on climbs now. When you uh, because I was posting the other week, posted a little picture of me riding the Giro and on and I think our lowest gears we had then were thirty nine twenty five. But back in the eighties, what what ratios were you using in a Grand Tour? I'm just fascinated because the gearing we've got now is you can have like a 30, 32 at the back and you can pretty much get up a brick wall with no level of fitness, can't you? But back then, what were you using back then? So in, so the, my normal setup would have been um, 42, 52 and 12, 21 on the back for a, for a normal kind of slightly hilly stage. Yeah. And if into the mountains, I would change the inner ring to forty-one. And just, just, just one, <laughs> just one two. Oh, I was thinking uh, you're going to say thirty-eight or at least thirty-nine. Blood, bloody hell! No, right. I would change just one. So would, I would. I had a four. The, th- the thing about having a forty-one chain ring is it made you feel special because they were only available to <laughs> to um, certain people from the Camp Agnoldo truck, which used to go to the worlds. Yeah, I don't know if, okay. if you, when you went to the worlds, the camp. If you rode Camp Agnoldo um, as an amateur. Um, they would come and make sure that, and you were going to be in kind of in the front or whatever. They would come and make sure that all your Campagnolo um, equipment was um, presentable. Yeah. And course, um, yeah, yeah. so when I turned pro, I asked them for. Um, I, I heard that there was the the mythic forty one inner chain ring that fifty don't. <laughs> <laughs> so so I asked for one, and, yeah. and, and because I used to do quite well at the world, um, I they gave me one. So I I always kept that. Um, so when I was on a, a Campag team, um, then I would have a forty-one chain ring for the mountains. So basically, at the Giro, I would take my forty-one chain ring along and give it to the mechanic and, and get it back afterwards. Otherwise, it'd just be lost in the system. Bloody hell! That's that, I, that's that is a that's an amazing little story that you used to carry around your own little forty-one ring that you owned. That's fantastic. That was mine. So I, I think I've still got it. Um, yeah, I probably will. I wouldn't have given that away. It was only certain people got them. Because if, when you thought back to how the, that campag set up, the, the smallest it was sold to the public was a forty-two, because that was apparently the smallest that you could get on the the spider. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so having a forty-one ring was quite good. And anyway, going back to the gearing, I, I would probably go to forty-one, twenty-two, or twenty-three. Twenty-three sure. would be the the maximum. The only time I would use something like 
25 would have been if it was really, really steep at the top of a, a major mountain. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I, I was kind of racing towards the, well, in, in, in your pomp in the, in the mid, mid kind of 80s, early kind of 90s, I was just getting into racing. And, and obviously, I was using similar kind of gearing. And, and, and you're quite right. If, even if you had a 23 on, which was pretty much the lowest I can remember using, or maybe even a 24, say, on a really hilly stage, the milk race up Devil's Staircase or something like that, um, for most of the day, even if even that you knew you had it, you wouldn't use it because you'd always you'd psychologically want it in reserve. So you most of the time, it used to be overgeared, and uh, and also because the gearing back then it was a, again, if you had like top end Campeg or Shimano, it was still nice. But quite often, if you actually put it onto the the largest plate on the back, the rear met used to sometimes rub the spokes, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, so, so, yeah, because it, so, because it bent. Because so then yeah. it would then it would tinkle the spokes and that's it. if you put too much pressure through the pedals, you thought you're going to rip the gear off or, or stick it in the, and, or, or destroy the wheels. So so you sit, used to save the last sprocket for the emergency part. Exactly, it was so, like like a break glass in emergency gear, really, wasn't it? And you'd hardly touch it, even though. And that oh. that happened to me when I um, at, at Lombardy one time where you had to go up this climb, you needed twenty five. Yeah, and um. We were getting near the top, and I was still in the kind of front group, and it was getting harder and harder. And I, I started to use the 25 before I got to the steep par. Right. So just before the final corner, um, the final switch back on to, onto where it got really, really steep, I changed back to 23. So I so when I changed back to 25 coming out of the corner, it felt smaller. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So, oh and, that, and, and even then, I had to stand up because it was so steep that I just, I just made it up there and no more. Oh, is, is that the climb? They oh, is it the Muros? Um, no, it's Muros. not the Muro because the Muro was only only sure, and you right. could get up that on twenty three. I think the, that one that they called the, the the Muro has always been in there. It's always quite about twenty k from the finish, twenty five k. And normally, if you're in the front group, then it doesn't. The decision's made then. Sure. It's already made, so there's probably between five and ten riders in the front, and it's only if you're, somebody's really strong that they'll go from there to the finish. It's just amazing. You're quite right. I mean, looking at old videos of riders in the mountains, even going back, then even further back from, from your time, you go back into the 70s and the 60s, it does look like, I mean, the whole the whole aspect of pedaling dynamics has changed because it looked like riders were quite often just doing weight training on the bikes, doesn't it? A lot, a lot of the backs, you know, the, the, just the style on the bike is completely different than it is now. Um, it's, I wouldn't say it's a difference. You know, it's not a different sport, but you had, to, you had to fight the bike a lot more because it was, you're basically yeah. overgeared. Although at the time yeah. you were thinking you weren't overgeared because um, that's, what you, that's all you had to play with. You, you couldn't ask for a 27 or a 29 because it didn't exist. Yeah. And thirty nine didn't didn't exist before, so. Um, you, and you didn't really. You, you, there was nothing. The thing is, you didn't worry about it because that you, you still had a pretty low gear on for what was available. So as long as you had pretty much nearest what was available, then you were fine, weren't you? It was just that's just the way it was. If it was a steep hill, you're going to go. You know, it's going to be a very very low cadence. There was no real thinking. Oh no, I need a lower gear. It just didn't compute really, then, did it? Well, there was. There was. Um, it's a different kind of thing. There's, once you got to something really steep, there was no no acceleration possible so yeah. then it was just a case of keeping the same same cadence and the kind of not slowing down too much because then you got to stalling speed what i used to call it whereas you couldn't turn it over anymore then you had to get your feet out quick because yeah. you were going to going to fall over so you had stuff like the copenberg where people fell over just because they got to what 
I called stalling speed and now it's a bit like flying an aircraft with it. You know, you weren't going forward anymore, so you, you went sideways. Yeah, that's and, it. It's just a matter of re- reaching that tipic, tipping point in, in, in terms of physics, really, isn't it? Especially on a climb yeah. like that. But, um, did you ever actually did you ever ride many of the cobble classics back then? I know you loved riding in the Ardennes and Liège was a, a race that you that you really enjoyed and, and did exceptionally well in. But did you ever ride any? Did you ever ride Flanders and I those did. sorts of events? You did, right. I and did. How, how did you how did you find them? Um, I got sent there, so I got sent to the um, the early March classics as a first year pro because basically the French guys on the in the French team didn't want to go to Belgium. Yeah. Okay. So the, <laughs> and this is with, this is with Peugeot, isn't it? So this is with Peugeot. So yeah. I learned that I got sent there because they didn't want to go. <laughs> okay. That sounds fair. That sounds fair. Typical French team. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I I got a baptism. So I'd never raced in Belgium. Wow. As an amateur. So That's that, amazing. So, that was, so my first case, first race in in Belgium was um, Het Vogue. Yeah. Um. What is it they call it now? You don't call Het, it Het Vogue now, isn't it? Newsblad. Newsblad. So, yeah. yeah, so I got sent there, and my job was um, to get in the break. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we had a so basically the, I think what there was I think there was about six of us, okay. and it was all for we were all the foreigners from Peugeot. There was a head book. There was I don't think there was any French guys there. So so my job because I was um, gullible enough to to take on that challenge was to get in the break. <laughs> okay. So when it set off in typical Belgian classic style, 50k an hour down the main road, 60k yeah. an hour now and again, yeah. I got in the break. I managed <laughs> to get in the break. <laughs> so I was, so um, my my kind of first cases of, of going to the Belgian classics were, were quite different to what, the, what they would have been if they'd been in the bunch because I was in the break. So when you got to the cobbles, there was only about 10 or 15 of us and um then i just hung on until i got dropped sure so i got sent to hip folk and because i'd done so well at hip folk by getting in the break here's the logic of the team <laughs> they, <laughs> they sent me to tour of flanders as you as you would as you would a, a, a climber yeah as, as you would a first year pro and i got yeah. in the break there as well because my Fucking job heck. was to get in the break but there was a couple oh, um so I got in the break at Tour of Flanders and we got to the Cobos and I went up Copenberg um, in the in the front group, <laughs> um, but got dropped near the, near the top. And then um, because I had done so well at Tour of Flanders, I then got sent to Gennett Wave again. Oh my God. To, to um, be baptized in riding in the side wind at 60k an hour and jumping over railway lines. Or tram lines as, the, as you get when you get to the pan, and I got in the break there as well. <laughs> Flipping it! <laughs> but and the break in Gent in Gent there was about twenty five, thirty of us in the break. So wow. when when you okay. came back in the echelon, at first I didn't want to go through because I couldn't because I was there with all those big Belgian Kermes riders, and they were killing me. And then I thought I'm just going to sit on. But when you sat on, because the road wasn't wide enough for for twenty five, thirty riders, you were in the gutter. Yeah. So you were, I was hanging on before I even got to um, the side wind at Depana. So then I started to go through because I thought well, it's better to go through. But when we got to the, the side wind, um, our group split into two. And then the, the race came with all the animals. Um, so 
Moser, Jan Ras, Kinetman, the whole rally squad yeah. came. Yeah. Going three times as fast as we were, so I didn't even get on the get on the wheels. And it went like that yeah. through the different kind of echelons, which were, which were going towards the front, um, yeah. and I was going backwards. And I think we got to about the third or fourth echelon, and I saw my first teammate. <laughs> <laughs> Who was it? Was it like was it Piper or, or, or Phil Anderson or Yatesy? <laughs> it was, um, if I remember rightly, it was Roger Leger who went on to become oh, right, okay. the director sportif. And he was in the, I think, the fourth echelon, and that meant he was God. probably 80th position. Right. And I only saw him for about, I don't know, 10 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> so then we turned off this. So the, the side window, on the, again, when you go along the coast at Depana, um, and the tram lines and all the, 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 the classic bit where you see everybody falling off and it's complete mayhem, that only yeah. lasts about 10, 15 kilometers before you turn off and you go into the hills. So, but when you turned off and went into the hills, I was already back in, in the in the kind of laughing groups, and it would just gone to the feet, and that's where most of our t- most of the Peugeot team was in the in the kind of hundredth, hundred and twentieth position. So we just rode to the feet, and then we stopped. But I, God, you still had to do um, Camel Bear. I think we did Camel Bear twice. Right. Um, so you do it from different directions, and if, if I, because I'd never been there, I didn't have a clue what, what was happening. And then Jesus. after after Kemmelberg, it was the feed, and I think we we didn't write. I didn't. I don't remember if we rode to the finish for the training or not, because the the team car said we we were crap and we had to ride to the finish. <laughs> God, <laughs> because sometimes at the classics, if you if if you didn't do well enough, um, the team car would go straight past you until you ride to the finish because you weren't kind of strong enough. So we yeah. would take it as kind of training, even though you were broken. You know the race had broken yeah. you, so. Um, yeah, so I did. All, was, I, I've done all the classics. The only classic I haven't done is Paris Roubaix. All the other ones right. I've done them. Right, and they and they're all in your first year. I mean, <clears throat> I honestly didn't realise that you had no experience of red, rock, you know, riding in Belgium because nowadays, and probably for the last twenty or thirty years, even more, you know, most young riders um, get kind of blooded, as it were, for want of a better phrase, over in Belgium to learn your kind of trade, and that that's really interesting that you just got plunged straight in at the deep end. Um, and riding on that sort of train. So you had to really learn on your feet, didn't you, you know, straight away? Well, I didn't have a clue what was going to happen. So it's, <laughs> God, it's amazing. So, it's, so, so it, and the next year, so the, as a, as a, after my first year as a pro, as the second year as a pro, because I'd done so well at the classics, um, they, sent, they sent me back to the same ones. God. So I got, I got sent back to um, Het Vogue and... Kent Wavelgum and Tour of Flanders as a second year. And it's only in my third year that I didn't have to go there. Yeah. Because I'd, I'd crogged up the pecking order and they, they did, some new pros had arrived and they sent them instead. Because this was this would have been 1980, wouldn't it? Um, yeah. It was your first year as a pro, wasn't it? Because uh, um, 79, you won the, the British Amateur Road Championships and turned pro. Um, and you were... You were an ACBB because I rode for ACBB as well. And um, what what years were you in ACBB? Was it 88, 80, sorry, 78, 79? So I was on there for 78. I, right, I did okay. one year. So right. I, um, basically ACBB used to take a, a set of foreign riders and hopefully a couple of you would turn pro. Yeah. So um, I was good enough to turn pro after one year, but some riders were there a bit longer. Yeah. Um, I only did one year. And the interesting thing about ACBB is even they didn't go to Belgium. You only went to the north of France, but you didn't go into Belgium. Sure. So there's, 
So even even at that amateur level, they were quite um, scared of going yeah. to Belgium and racing because <laughs> there was this mythic thing about the Belgians would eat you. Jesus, it's so, so funny, isn't it? Yeah. And even when you went to the north of France, the, you, it was, I don't know, it was like going to going to a, 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 a fork in a foreign country where the, the people were more aggressive and they were stronger and harder and all the rest of it. There was this kind of mythic thing about going up north and people were harder than they were down at Paris. <laughs> even though even though it was, what, 150 miles away or something like that? We don't go up north. There's people there who... Um, they're hard up there. They go and race in Belgium, that kind of thing. So it's almost like a, <clears throat> the French version of the north, a little bit of the north-south divide, soft southerners and uh, and tough northerners yeah. kind of thing going on, it, isn't it? It was that. Oh, we don't yeah. go there. They're all t- they're, it's too hard up there. They go to Belgium. It's like, what? What's that about? It's not north up there. It's, Belgium is not north from Scotland. You clearly um, look back on on your time as a, as, as a pro, pro rider um, with a lot of fondness. And, and I know when we've talked um, before at, um, a, f- a few times you've you I can see the look in your in, in your eyes and it, you, you you light up when you talk about the old days although I guess there you were going through a, your own kind of personal struggle but it's quite clear to me that you relaying these stories there's still a great deal of fondness about your time as a pro I mean a, am I right in saying that yeah they were great you, you have so much fun racing even though mm. it hurts something basically you enjoy it it's this kind of um it's a kind of strange thing that you think, oh, this is really hard. Isn't it great? <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 we're a little, let's, let's be honest. Um, pro bike riders have to be a little bit sick in the head. A little bit. You have to be a little bit of a sadist, don't you? Because you you're constantly hurting yourself. You can spend all day in a line out in the gutter behind the same person and it eases up just a fraction. And you, you've enjoyed it. <laughs> You've actually thought, wow, that was that was great. Look how fast we were going. Even though it wasn't you that was making you go that fast and you didn't really want to hurt yourself that much. Yeah. You think about it and you think, wow, that was great, wasn't it? <laughs> it, it, it you do, yeah. You, you get a bit of a buzz. You definitely get an endorphin drop, don't you? You know, even when you've suffered. There's, there's something wrong with you that you, you thought that was good fun. But basically yeah. it was because you, got, you went so fast – there was, yeah, there's some kind of adrenaline thing to it. And you think, oh, wow, this is great. What else could I be doing that's, that's this much fun? I mean, the only time it's not fun is when you're freezing cold and it starts snowing or yeah. it's raining or you fall off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we've all had times when you're riding along and you do then start to question your your choice of profession, don't you? I mean, I've had a few moments. I mean, my career was nowhere near as illustrious and as long as yours, but still you often think, what on earth am I doing here? I mean, generally, when it, it was when you were suffering, but cold. I think it's um, that's when I've kind of thought about my life choices, when I can almost start to feel the shape of my internal organs because it's so cold. It, you can Normally, you've got this kind of, you're aware of a warm mass as, as the center of your body, but I've been so cold on a few occasions where I can actually start to feel my internal organs, and that's actually quite <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> the only way I can describe it. <laughs> Have you ever got so cold that your fingers, um, you think you've got frostbite? Uh, yes, in the Duro once, um, I started to cry. Um, yeah, I cried. Were, they, were your fingers still hurting a couple of days later? Yes, they were tingling. Um, they stayed, the tips of them stayed white. And then they, they, I didn't have frostbite, <laughs> but I don't know. But they stayed white for a couple. It was horrible. I take it you've clearly had an experience like that. <laughs> yeah, I've had that. And the funny thing about when it happened to me is we were at... Um, 
the Pays Vasco Basque Country race. Oh, right. You wouldn't write. Okay. So early April, um, in between Criterium of um, Dauphine, what is it? Criterium de Dauphine, what is it called? Criterium International, what do they call it now? Um, it's... It's still Criterium International. No, what was it called now? Just a little two, two or three day race, wasn't it? That yeah, so there's the a little three, two, and then there's the classics. And we used to go, um, so you do the fr- guys would do the first classics, and then they would do um, Bay Basque. And we went there. I was at um, Panasonic, and they said the weather was going to be variable. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. That's very <laughs> ambiguous, isn't it? <laughs> which, which for Bay Basque means it could be anything or it could be everything. And it was yeah. everything. Yeah. So. The first day we we set off, and do you remember those um those big one piece suits you used to get for training in the winter, that oh, kind of yes. Roubaix material, the yeah. thermal material. So I yeah. had a long sleeve jersey on on top of that, the one piece suit. Wow, boots, gloves, everything. It was freezing cold, but it wasn't raining. Right. Then it started raining, and then it started kind of um, hailstoning. Okay. And then the sun came out. And when the sun comes out in in April in that part of Spain, it goes to 15, 20 degrees. Yeah, it's quite warm straight away, yeah. So off came the long sleeve jersey, the gloves, the boots, the whole thing. And everybody, and I couldn't take the one-piece suit off because basically I was in it for the day. My number was on it. Okay. So I was sweating buckets. (laughs) But all the other people running about me hadn't been so stupid enough to start in the one-piece suit. Right. And so they ended up in short sleeves and shorts, no gloves. And there was two mountains left to go over in this stage. I was hanging on, sweating. <laughs> and um, the sun came out on the, even stronger on this hill. So we were all sweating a bit and everybody was sweating. And then on the, we got to the top and it started snowing. So we went down the other side in the snow towards the next, <laughs> towards the next hill. And there was no, if people are listening in, there was no bad weather protocol back then. I mean, whatever the conditions, pretty much you rode in, didn't you? Whatever the weather threw at you. So, so because the, because there was guys everywhere, the, the team cars couldn't get up to the front. So we went down the other side in the snow and, and hit the next hill and it started hailstoning and snowing in the snow. Kind of, I don't know how it happened, but hailstones at the bottom and snowing at the top. And when we got to the top, you were riding in track. You, so you could see tyre tracks on God. the road. And I was kind of okay then because I was in the one-piece suit, but my hands and my feet were frozen. Right. And my head was frozen because you only had, you didn't have a helmet, you had those normal, and I'd thrown my, you had a, what you call a, a rain casket, so it was kind of plastified. Okay. So that was waterproof. But I'd thrown that away because I was too hot, so I only had a, <laughs> <laughs> so I only had a cloth hat, and the, cloth, right. the, the normal casket. Yeah. So that was soaking, so there was snow in the front of that. But all around about me, there was people crying, because yeah. they were in short sleeves and shorts and no hat. God almighty. And when we got to the finish, my hands were so cold that three days later, do you remember capsuling that, that stuff that you used to get to put on your legs? Yes, yeah, yeah. That, that you, you couldn't put on much of it because it burned you. Yeah, yeah. So you, you put, you're going to tell me you put that on your hands? <laughs> <laughs> I put that on my hands the next day because my hands oh, were so sore and God. still cold. And, uh, and I was in the one-piece suit again because I didn't dare be that cold again. <laughs> and that, um, and every, people were crying at the finish. They were so cold. And, and at that pay, um, tour of the Basque Country, I rode every day in the one-piece suit and I managed to finish in the front group. And the only day I got dropped was the day my one-piece suit hadn't dried out on the radiator in the hotel and I had to wear normal clothes. <laughs> 
Flipping so, heck. So, so I had to wear kind of normal leg warmers and arm warmers and jerseys, and that was the only day I got dropped because I got so cold. And every day it, it, it snowed, rained, hailstones, sunshine. Yeah. It was great. Bloody and that's, that's where I discovered that my how to get frostbite <laughs> on, a, on a push bike. I mean, uh, that's that little point at the end there when you talk about, you know, I know you, you still got looked after as a pro in terms of kit, but you didn't have the same variety. And, and you generally didn't, and unless you're in a big hotel and they used to collect the bags of washing, you used to pretty much wash your own kit in the sink or in the shower, didn't you, in the bath, and then dry it on the radiators. And if it wasn't, if certain things like your shoes weren't dry, I mean, I mean, I don't you know, it, it was just different. Yeah, you just put wet shoes on, didn't you? <laughs> you put wet shoes on. Yeah. <laughs> or you, after a while, they started having proper um, hair dryers in the hotels. Yeah. So you, you, so you could jam your hair, the hair dryer from in the bathroom in, in your shoes, and they'd be dry <laughs> while you went for your dinner. <laughs> There's a slight risk they might burn the hotel down, but it's yeah. better than having cold feet the following day, mate, isn't it? You know, yeah, so, so if, the, if, the, if the hotel burnt down, <laughs> you wouldn't start the race because all your stuff was burned, so you could go home. God, no, that's 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 incredible. Just one quick story from me about drying your shoes. Um, I don't think I've talked about it on the podcast. It was the Giro de Regione. Uh, 1991 I think and uh, we were it was wet weather and I was sharing a a, a little apartment with a guy called Matt Postle from Wales lovely Welsh lad and and we're riding for GB anyway it was pouring down the rain and we were absolutely soaked cold Um, and he decided to put his time shoes in the oven Um, so he didn't tell me he he basically put his shoes in the oven um, just straight in turn, turn the oven on and I could smell and he put them on a baking tray, and I, and I could smell this. I was just in the apartment after dinner, smell this burning. I thought, Matt, what's that burning? And he says, oh, no, it's my shoes. So he, he ran to the oven and got some oven gloves and took out his time shoes, and they were on fire, the straps. <laughs> and he only, of course, he only had one pair of shoes. So we, we managed to get, we threw his, his shoes in the sink and poured water over them and got them dry, but they'd all melted. Anyway, but... He had to wear them, and we so he, <laughs> so the Velcro had perished and burnt. But for the next for the for the next three days of the race, toe he used straps. to put his shoes on. Yeah, well, toe straps and and uh, electrical tape that used to do your bars up with. So the yeah, mechanic would tape. just tape his yeah gaffer tape his shoes up, and people <laughs> oh, he, we could just took the piss out of him forevermore after that. But yeah, uh, note to self: don't put your shoes in the oven. Is, is or, I think, um, or, is, or is even nowadays, don't put them in the the microwave. Oh yeah, don't yeah. There's bits of metal in there, and so have you? Don't tell me you've done that. Don't tell me you've done that. No, no, no. no <laughs> but uh, I tell you what, we're gonna do. We're gonna just break for a moment, um, Pip, if you don't mind. And uh, there's I don't know if you've listened to any of the podcasts before, um, but there's a round a, a a segment of this post podcast called Guess That Snack. Okay, where I ask my guest to guess the snack that I'm eating. Okay. Uh, I tell you what the snacks are first. Okay. So there'll be a variety of snacks, which I'll go through in a few moments time. And then just by the sound of the crunch, I'd like you to work out what that snack is. Okay. So uh, we're going to insert now a little jingle, which they'll do. So it's time. Guess that snack. Guess that snack. Oh yeah. Guess that snack. First off, Pip, what do you reckon to the jingle? I thought I was on Radio 1 in the 1980s. There you go. 
<laughs> that, was, that, that's Cecile Utrop Ludwig, you know, she did that especially for us. But anyway, so we're in uh, Guess That Snack now, complete break off what we're talking about, but uh, it just gives us a bit of uh, time to, well, it gives me an opportunity to get something to eat, to be honest with you. So I, I've got four snacks. We normally do three, uh, but I'm going to up the ante a little bit um, on this edition of Matt Stevens Unplugged Pippa. We're going to go for four snacks. I'm hoping that you've heard of all of them. I've no doubt you will. Uh, but so I, what I have, I have some mini pretzels. Okay. I don't eat them. You don't eat those, but you'll probably, you'd imagine I know what the sound's like. I'd I'd like to think you would. Uh, So mini pretzels, they are about the size of a 50 pence piece in the shape of a pretzel. They are actual mini pretzels. I also have Smith's, so Walker's, sorry, Walker's Square Crisps. Do you remember these? Vaguely, yeah. Vaguely. So they're, yeah, they're very anemic looking square crisps and i've got salt and vinegar flavor that the they've just opened the bag and the, there's a real pungency that's just hit me right in the face um so square crisps frazzles what are they I, I, you don't know what a frazzle is <laughs> no. <laughs> oh no uh they are a corn-based snack but they look like um they're vegan crisps Let me have i've just googled it frazzles yeah, there you go. Oh, you just, oh, great. So frazzles, they look like bits of bacon. They're small. They're so tasty. I, I'll send you a bag or just buy a bag yourself because they're only they're, You go to Poundland, I, which I go quite a lot, uh, eight bags for a pound. I mean, you can't say fairer than that, can you? Um, and yeah. then finally, a what, what's it? Yeah, I know what you know, it's You know what it's are, don't you? So I've got four snacks. On a, so what's it, frazzles, square crisps, and um, mini... What have you? A mini, those mini things that I've forgotten the name of. Pretzels. <laughs> pretzels. Thank you very much. So God you've got Marty. Pretzels, frazzles, square crisps, and what was the last one? Um, what's it? What's it? Okay. So I'm going to start off now. So I'm putting the first one in. Pippa, it's time to guess that snack. <laughs> here, here we go. Yes. <laughs> what do you think that was? I'd say that was. I'd say that was the square crisps. Oh, it was a pretzel. It was a pretzel. Oh. I don't eat pretzels, so I don't. I, it was a don't guess. Worry, it's a good, it's a good, good guess. But let's move on to snack number two. Just putting it in my mouth now. Here we go. Listen closely. Concentrate. Oh, that's a what's it? Straight off the bat. Straight in. Well done. <laughs> so you got one out, one out of two. Next up, here we go. Here we go. So that sounds like a fra- Looking at the picture of a frazzle, which I'm not familiar with, I would say that was. Oh wait a minute! So they're bacony. I wonder if they're bacony consistency as well. See, this is a dilemma between the crisp and the frazzle. <laughs> I'm going to give you a hint. So the, but your first line of thought was pretty much spot on. So uh, it, it did sound like they had, looking at the, the, the images of, of frazzles, they look like they've got a bit of air in them, which crisp wouldn't have. So crisp yeah. would, would be a more a more crunchiness. So I would say that was the vegan frazzles. C- congratulations. Play! Two out of three. And that, and that's, I tell you what, I'm going to give you an extra bonus point for your, your methodology, your deduction there. But just, there you go, we've got the extra point in the bag. Um, the fact you've never had a frazzle, but looked at the packet and the new science is astonishing. Well done. Last one. You obviously know what it is. This is a... 
That that'll be a Walker's Squares crisp. Walker's well, Square indeed. crisps. Did it, did, well, indeed. I can't tell you what taste it was. Salt vinegar. Oh, okay, the best Salt one then. Vinegar. So there we go. You actually got four. Well, because you got the bonus point, you actually got four out of four. That what? was guess that snack. Guess that snack. Guess that snack. Oh yeah, guess that snack. There we go. Yeah, it's definitely worth buying some. I mean, I know we, I don't want this podcast to turn into a snacks advert, but they are sensational. Uh, I even sprinkle them in soup. So tomato soup, get some frazzles, sprinkle them in. You, It will take you to, to basically paradise I'll, in your mouth. I'll, I'll tell you about soup. Go on then. I, I've started putting an egg in my soup. Have you? <laughs> I don't know why that's, that's funny. But how, but what's so? So you... You're just breaking an egg, and it cook the soup cooks it, does it? Oh no, I, I, it's either a fried egg or a, a, a poached egg. It goes in the soup. Wow! And apparently, it's a Polish thing. But my other half is isn't impressed. Um, she says it's um, I think to use her words, disgusting. <laughs> well, I wouldn't call it disgusting. I'd, I'd call it interesting. But, but um... I've, I'm sure I've had it before on a bike race. I'm, I'm sure when the Giro went into Austria, we were given soup with an egg in it although it was something like that consomme soup so the egg was sure. really apparent right. whereas when you put it in tomato soup it kind of sinks to the bottom and you can't see it so it's a, mm. one of those hidden surprises yeah definitely uh yeah I mean, it does sound like something the austrians might do uh, <laughs> with, uh, with with an egg i mean I, I mean i'm a big fan of austria and that neck of the woods but their their uh, cuisine's interesting isn't it it's a bit of an eye-opener some some quite abstract sort of styles of cookery that they do um okay well pippa i'm i'm i want to talk a little bit about about now and about about the cycling industry and obviously you you've been in a working within cycling for you pretty much your entire life and you've recently been doing some commentary you compete as robert miller we all know that you know you're now philippa york and i just wanted to ask you how you how you feel within the cycling industry at the moment do, do you feel that you've got a proper voice do you feel represented do you still feel it's hard to get work i'm gonna just asking you really really kind of plainly and honestly now how do you kind of feel right now within the cycling industry um it's something i've had to process uh returning in my present condi- condition state persona yeah uh, not sure what the quite right what the correct word would be um yeah i've had to kind of process how i feel about that and certain things kind of um are a bit challenging or have yep. been yeah um do i think it it brings me more or less work oh i think that depends on the circumstances if mm-hmm. if if it's if it's a basic kind of um bike race reporting kind of commentary thing i don't think it does i think you're there a bit on your merits of what you know and what you can really um communicate or, re- yeah. or report yeah. um for other things for for kind of more general cycling things the way that the world is going with the whole kind of equality uh, and um discrimination stuff that, that, that young people will no longer put up with yeah um it's probably an asset because i i I come with kind of two stories to tell. One of the kind of elite athlete who function quite well, yep. and then one is the kind of the, the person who comes with a diversity and equality story. That and, and um, 
hopefully they can tell that quite quite um, well too. But um, I wouldn't say that it's an advantage, my kind of present condition. Um, I think it's just one of those things that's happened and um, I've tried to deal with it in the kind of same way that I dealt with my career. Yeah. So um, the kind of various steps and stuff um, kind of went to a plan. Um, but how how do I feel about the how how the cycling industry deals with me? I think some people are okay. There's certain companies which were quite progressive, um, yeah. and obviously they've they have kind of proper um, human resources departments and a kind of policies and stuff. And then there's others which kind of are catching up. And, yeah. um, and they sometimes don't use you as, as much as they can. So um, it's one of those ongoing things where people are – I think my my case has put a lot of people in a, in, a, in a kind of funny position that they're not quite sure how to deal with me. Yeah. And, then, and so they either choose not to or um, they feel quite awkward about it. Yeah. And I always say to people that I'm, I, I'm just a kind of a normal person who dealt with something which wasn't quite as normal as most people would have to deal with. Sure. Um, and I used to say that about my bike riding as well. I'm just a bike rider. Yeah. And I'm, okay, I've got I got to a level which isn't wasn't available to everybody, and, and most people wouldn't get to. But I still go to the shops, and you know, I still function as a basic human being, and and I I try to you know keep that. Um, saneness about my life instead of getting involved in too many kind of um, things which are demonstrations of the kind of you know the, I'm, I don't shout about my human rights or of discrimination or any stuff I, I'll talk about it if people ask me about it so I, do you yeah so, sorry Pepe, no, go on, on. Yeah, go on. no I, I was going to say um, for you and I know and I know that you have talked about this um, a little bit before on, on TV and in, and in some interviews when you first official, officially for want of a better word announced to the world um, your, you know your your transition um, etc but um, how what I'm trying to say is, is how how are you trying to affect kind of people's attitudes uh, are you quite happy just to is it more important for you to make sure that you live a normal life and protect your family etc um, or do you really want to affect kind of change or are you kind of ambivalent to that I mean where, where do you kind of stand and where do you think you, you, you potentially have a role in all that um, so lo- looking at the platform that's available to me is as is, is, people say in that kind of modern kind of management speak um, the role that I can have is to affect how people see the whole kind of transition process and, and mm. people who actually go through that or, or, or start along that kind of whole whole journey. Um, and I can try and explain it as it happened to me. And I'm quite happy to talk about that. Not because I think it's something to promote, but it, the more knowledge that people have about... Um, what happens and, and if it's going to, how it's going to affect basically everybody from the person who's transitioning to the, the whole kind of family unit or friends or whoever who's close to that person. Yeah. Um, if I can give out that kind of information and that knowledge of how it may go, 
that may help those people. And, and, I, and I see that as kind of um, what I ought to talk about if people ask me about it, but I won't actively go and seek to kind of promote that because I don't sure. think that's the best way of communicating it. Sure. Because when you kind of, if you go and you shout, shout about you want this and you want that and you want it yesterday, people tend to shut down. But if people are, people are curious and they want to ask you a question, I'm, in most cases, I'm quite happy to answer that. Yeah. And I think that given the kind of access I have to certain um, media platforms, it's, I ought to talk about it if, if asked. Yeah. Just so that that information is is put out there, and and it is we're not getting information just from from the people who are kind of saying that um, gay people and trans people uh, and bisexuals or or whatever kind of condition or 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 thing you're going through, they they should be kind of kept quiet, and um, and nobody should talk about it because it encourages uh, encourages young people to kind of follow that, and when it it really isn't that at all. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth touching on a, another kind of, I wouldn't call it a thorny subject, but it's, it's, it's one that's intrigued me and, and many, many observers for a long time, I guess, although it's hardly ever spoken about. And you obviously struggle with your own identity all through your professional career. And, and I know, to quote you, you, you said that you somehow managed to compartmentalize that and still managed to be an exceptionally successful, the finest you know, proponents of of road cycling of your generation and one of the best British riders of all time, yet you essentially were somebody else at the same time. And, and, and you managed and you, and you kind of managed that. Um, but what are your thoughts on, and when you look at sexuality and not just, um, people, you know, who feel their, the like gender identity, but in terms of actual sexuality, what do you think about, you know, a thousand registered professional male road cyclists and not one, being outwardly gay or openly kind of gay and, and do you think because statistically that's you know basically an impossibility no, and we, yes. it's it's still a remarkably <clears throat> macho sport and, and the word macho i find increasingly more distasteful but um but i think people are becoming you know more comfortable about expressing themselves you know talking about other things apart from you know going hard on a bike although i, I still love to talk about the stories that, that you know with with old professionals but what do you think about that? I, do, do you think they still it's, clearly? What I'm trying to say is they're still they're still it's still suppressed, isn't it? Massively suppressed because of attitudes of sponsors, perhaps people within teams, organisations are kind of afraid to have a you know an, an openly gay bike rider. So yeah. this is this is what I call the gay footballer syndrome. Mm. This this when you look at football or any kind of um, male basically a male kind of dominating sport where it's basically just males who watch other males um, competing or playing or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and there's there's nobody in those big kind of what you call macho sports is openly gay. And it's a statistic. It, it, it's mathematically impossible mm. because it, it's somewhere, what is it, Somewhere between six and ten percent of the population has, has some kind of gay feelings or or um, tendencies. Yeah. So then, when you look, at, so when you go to when you go to something like Tour de France and there's two hundred riders on the start line, basically it's twelve of them are gay or somewhere somewhere on that spectrum. Yeah, I like to call it the gay spectrum because then you don't have to say the whole LGBT plus sure. IQ thing. So somewhere on that gay spectrum, there's twelve of them. 
who 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 kind of have that um, sexuality or, yep. or or tendencies or whatever you want to call it. So, but none of them feel comfortable enough in in the sport to be open about it. Yeah. But this is this is the twenty first century, I know. and the, the the companies and the sponsors that they work that they're representing don't have those policies in place which discriminate against which would discriminate against them yeah so they, they have the backing of the sponsor but they don't feel comfortable enough amongst their colleagues or amongst their the the, the people that they're working for basically the, the team setups to to be open about it and i find that really disappointing it, not it is it, not for the person but for the the, the structure of the sport and, and, and it's not just a, a cycling thing. There's so many um, kind of male-dominated sports which have that same, those same kind of inbred feelings that you can't really... It's okay if you're, if you're straight and you're white and you kind of fit that whole kind of strong kind of, oh, I wish I could be like you kind of thing. But yeah. um, for anybody who's even slightly on that gay spectrum, they don't talk about it because yeah. it's it's and you get the feeling it's judged as a weakness as a as a physical or mental kind of um slight of your of your character or, or yeah. who you are which is it's crazy because because sport is the entertainment industry and if there's one industry which is going to have a whole set of gay people it's the entertainment industry because if you when you watch television or films or anything there's no problem. They have no problem at all with um, um, with that whole diversity thing, but sport seems to, and I find that really disappointing. Yeah, it is. It is strange, and I, I think it is and, primarily male dominated sports as well. Like you say, although I, I think there's far, I, as far as I'm aware, there's far more openness in relation to you know um, females being gay. You know, there's a lot more openness. In, in cycling in relation to gay females there's no there's clearly no issue with that but when it comes down to being and there, and there shouldn't be and there isn't and uh, but when it comes down to being a bloke in a cycling team it seems there clearly is so much pressure um, on on individuals not to, to just conform to the to the old stereotype even in the 21st century but can you imagine being you know out of the thousand this figure I put out yeah there's more than a thousand pros but can you imagine being let's even be conservative and say there's only 25 and the list super conservative can you imagine the pressure that those individuals are under day in day out because they can't express who they really are i mean um I, I, I don't know it's it's, it's, it's I, awful I isn't it i don't think it's even the question of of, of promoting your own sexuality i think it's is is that person having to pretend yeah. You know, so the the whole banter that goes on in in cycling teams, you know, there's a, there's a lot of kind of sexual banter goes on because obviously you're away from home and you see people you're attracted to in various situations and yeah. people and, and young men discuss that kind of stuff. Even old men discuss that stuff. Yeah. Um, so um, and those individuals, you you have to kind of join in, otherwise you'll be seen as this is kind of something wrong with you. Yeah, um, yeah. You're, you're weak or you don't fit into that kind of whole team structure so that that must be really difficult and like you say yeah. for, for, for the female side of things they, they don't really have a problem with it and I do wonder if that's because there's, there's this whole kind of males in the shower kind of thing or are they looking at me what, what, what's wrong with them kind of stuff I wonder if it's that 
Yeah, it's 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 funny, but it, it's so old school, isn't it? It's so you'd have thought because of how progressive oh, they still. I mean, look at the situation that the um, the world's in now over the, the the awful death of George Floyd and and minorities being you know you know proportionally represented, etc. And um, you'd you'd think that something like gay men in in cycling, for example, would be would be something that years ago we would have dealt with and had accepted and and that we had no kind of issue with. But clearly, it's I think it's just the unspoken issue, isn't it? Because nobody's out- outwardly saying there shouldn't be any any pro cyclists, uh, male cyclists that are gay. There's, it's completely and utterly un- unspoken, unspoken, isn't it? But there's clearly this pressure, this uh, this environment that's maybe a little bit toxic still that that suppresses these people. So we, we don't actually know who they are unless they're, and I'm sure they're not happy in kind of keeping that that kind of thing to themselves because they're they're yeah, having because, to live these double lives, aren't they? <laughs> because because even afterwards, people don't talk about it. You know, so so even afterwards, when you get riders who've 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 obviously retired, even they, even if if, if they were gay, they were not, they're not going to turn up with their partner at a bike race. It just doesn't no. happen, and you you wonder why that is. You wonder why that that whole kind of setup and that that whole team structure doesn't doesn't allow people to be open as if because they would be open if they were working in any other kind of setup you know yeah. so any other kind of company or, or anything I mean, it's I mean, it's, it's, strange it is it is very strange i mean and i think we i mean we're, i'd love to be able to talk a little bit longer about it we're kind of coming to the a bit of a bit of a close but i think just to keep on that on that kind of point i know that you've recently been a an adopter to zwift and uh, it's pride <laughs> month isn't it Pride Month at the moment. That's why I'm there. So just talk talk a little bit about what you're going to be doing with Zwift at Pride Month and how how people can maybe join you on on, on a bike ride on Zwift. So so normally this is Pride Month, so um, I probably go on maybe two two Pride events, local ones or a kind of bigger one if I went to to Bournemouth or something like that. Um, But they're not having them. So so Zwift have realised that, you know, there's gay people out there, there's people who support gay people um and they're doing pride on events um where a group of people sign up as kind of allies to the whole kind of um gay movement um and you go for a a gentle or not so gentle bike ride at a certain time (laughs) so they're um so they're on tuesdays and saturdays and you sign up and you start and you ride whatever speed you want to and looking at the classification of it, it said between one and a half and two watts per kilo. So I thought at first, okay, this won't be too bad. I can ride it two watts per kilo. I'm, <laughs> I'm, still, I'm, pretty br- still pretty brisk, isn't it? I'm okay at that. I'm sweating, but I'm okay. But um, I've discovered that not everybody wants to ride at that level. So, um, yeah. So the first one was a bit of a shock. So we set off and I didn't. So I set off quite kind of slowly and in the middle of the group. I think there was something like six or 700 people. Wow, which is quite strange when you. Uh, I've been really discovering cool, discovering Swift, and it was kind of on your own, and you, people would catch you, and or you'd catch them, and they'd kind of follow you for a bit. So the whole kind of group dynamic of it was a bit, bit strange at first. So then I had to speed up, and I thought I'll go and see what's happening at the front. But the front was so far in front that I never saw the front <laughs> <laughs> because oh, they set God. off. I don't know four or five watts per kilo straight. Yeah. Um. Straight away. And then once you're a minute behind, um, or two minutes behind, you're never going to catch up unless you can yeah. ride like a, a, a pro. So I thought, yeah. well, stuff that. 
So now, <laughs> so, so now I've discovered that if you set off in the front line and you set off straight away, then somebody attacks and then on the little screen. So then, then, then they start riding. And, and I can ride probably just behind the front group. But it is hard. You know, I have to ride quite hard. I'm at, I think I'm at three and a half watts per kilo or something, which is... That's, is wow, that's, that's is, uncomfortable. So that's, yeah, uncomfortable. So I'm really sweating then. So then it's, it's hurt. it hurts. Um, but the whole, the whole Zwift thing, um, it's quite strange how it changes your kind of pedal stroke and how you apply power. Mm. It's, a, it's a very different thing to how I would ride outside. And I was speaking to Wayne Bennington, who used to be a pro on, on Zedwith. Um, oh, and yeah, he said it. Yeah, yeah. And he's he was telling me how it had kind of um, it's changed how he 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 rides on climbs and stuff because he lives in the south of France now so he rides um, those big climbs that they do in the Pyrenees and kind of those kind of climbs so um, he was saying that it improved that and I noticed when I went out the other day on the road that if I sit down it kind of changes the whole dynamic of how I how, how I ride that climb um, but. Looking at it and how how I would use that as if, if I was still competing, I think I'd probably um, concentrate my time trial training on that on that kind of um, digital platform like Swift. Because no, it, it is it is yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting platform, and like I say, it's you know that there are many comparisons to running on the road, but I think it's it's its own thing as well. And I know a lot of uh, a lot of pros, Alex Dowsett for for, for one. Who's obviously is uh, his trade is performing well in, in a, it's being a time trialist. He does a lot of time trial training on Swift now. Uh, yeah, like I can said, see that because it, cause it changes it changes the the pedaling dynamic of the of the whole pedal stroke. So you tend to not only just press on the pedal, but tend to pull it up as well. Yeah, so yes, it's very very interesting. So there's a different strain on your ligaments and knees and things and your shoes and that, and that kind of thing. So and that take that that took a bit of getting used to. But I can see how that would be useful in, in for somebody like Alex to um keep on top of his time trial training i mean we are going to have to wrap things up uh people i think we, we're going to have to do this again we'll have to do part two because it's been fascinating we've only just kind of scratched the surface of of what we could talk about i could literally sit here all day and talk to you quite happily and go and get some more snacks for you to guess etc and uh, maybe get a brew on but um the, the one my one little parting um little parting question i'd like to ask i don't know how much tv you watch but obviously during these these lockdown times but people have been uh, searching um for entertainment as best they can whether it's podcasts whether it's kind of new music or or things on tv is there are you a particularly avid watcher of or consumer of content on telly and if so is there a particular drama or, or tv show that you would recommend to people listening to this uh, to this podcast uh what have i been watching so i've been watching killing eve oh yeah okay so i've watched all the series of killing eve again um, up until the last one. So the last one was yesterday, so that was great. Even okay. though people are arguing about the third series being not as good as the last one. But other than that, um, I'll probably watch Game of Thrones again from the start. Well, I, I, you know, I've never I've never seen it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm on... I think I told this to somebody else about this last week. Um, I'm on um, oh, Breaking Bad. I'm still on like season... It's kind of I'm on season four now, so I'm... I'm no, on. I've never watched that. It's it's great, honestly. It's so good. It's old now. It's two thousand and eight. It was made, but it's 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 brilliant. It's more. It's just a wonderful character study of of um, rather than. It's almost like the drug stuff in the background. 
is just a kind of minor subplot to this kind of guy going through these. It's it's just great. You should, I'd heartily recommend it. But I, but I'll do. So you've seen Game of Thrones once already. I've seen Game of Thrones. I think I've watched the the complete series um, twice already, and I'll probably go back and watch it again. Flipping it. Well, that's a good recommendation. I, sh- I shall definitely do that. Um, and, and I like the surprises it has. You like the surprises. Well, I've kept. I've managed to keep clear of any spoilers. I think I've bar one or two over the last few years. So um, I shall embark on that. I think once I've um, watched Breaking Bad. So, so ba- yeah. Well, well, thank you very much indeed, Pippa. Um, th- and, and great work on guess that snack. Considering you hadn't eaten one of the snacks, I generally go through snacks that people have, have experienced before. But um, it's been a pleasure to talk to you as ever. Um, and um, hopefully we can do this again in the near future because it was a lot of fun. Okay, thank you very much. We're firmly in the middle of June now as we record this, and while June is usually a fallow month in terms of Grand Tour action, I think there's room to have some Grand Chore fun. Last week's stage three was emptying the dishwasher, throwing up some memorable action, and today's stage promises to be equally unpredictable. This is the Grand Chores Stage 4, making the bed. Welcome to stage four of the Grand Chores, making the bed. Well, I'm in the bedroom, uh, sleep is finished, sleep has now passed, moving on to the making the bed part of the day. I'm gonna talk you through a few little stats. Um, it's good, really, to kind of map out what you're gonna do uh, when making the bed of a morning, or of an afternoon if you've had a little bit of a lion. Well, we have got a super king-size bed, so it's big, very, very big bed indeed. We've got classic duvet, we've got four pillows atop and the bottom on each side. We've got a flowery design that uh, was bought in John Lewis, um, but with a plain pillowcase underneath. We've got a mattress protector and a super king sheet on the top of the mattress uh, protector, and it is a Therapure memory phone bed. So. Um, I'm moving in straight away, stripping back the duvet cover. Now, a lot of people make the mistake of actually using too much energy too soon um, and going very, very deep because what happens is through the night, the duvet gets moved around within the, uh, the duvet cover. And if you're going to lift that up and kind of toss that out, that's going to spend a lot of energy. I'm going to do that a little bit later on, but I'm moving to the top end of the bed. Now, what's happened here, it's been quite a rough night's sleep I think so what I'm doing is re-tucking in the under sheet so the padding moving around the bed making sure all four corners are done oh no one of the pillows has fallen off in the night that pillow is on the floor that is going to cause a bit of a problem having to reach down pick it up oh bit of a twinge in the back that's not what I planned for that's going to cost us dear later on in the stage but I'm back to making sure that the uh, the mattress protector is in place, moving the pillows to the side and then moving back in to the sheet. Now, back on top of the game now, back around the back of the bed, moving to the top corner, left-hand side of the bed, tucking in that sheet, using both hands, bending the knees as well. Important that you bend those knees, making sure it's nice and crisp, nice and tight. So the elastic on the sheet really clips underneath the duvet snaps back. I often use a 50 pence piece or other coin just to bounce on the bed, just to make sure it's nice and tight. Smooth it down with your hands, ironing out any creases, using your body warmth as a sort of fleshy iron. Now, pillows down. Now, 
give them a bit of a smooth out again using your hands again they need to be nice and crisp make sure those seams are aligned because if you get the bed made and you spot that the seams are unaligned you're going to have to start from scratch start the stage again and that's the last thing you want so both pillows are on they're in place moving to the back of the bed looking down the, the head the length of the bed towards the bed head perfectly symmetrical okay now getting both hands either side of the back end of the duvet within the duvet cover gripping onto both the inside of the duvet and the outside and giving it a big toss big big toss making sure that within the duvet cover the duvet itself settled back into the position and that is perfect absolutely perfect smoothing things out yet again always checking for alignment symmetry symmetry absolutely key when making a bed any sort of bed be it double be it single be it bunk it doesn't matter smoothing things out stepping back and taking a look a perfectly made bed amazing stuff there and all that hard work making the bed will definitely reap its rewards later in the stage day um, when I head to bed and find it in pristine condition. And it's a really big morale boost, isn't it? Getting into the bedroom, looking at the bed and seeing all neat and crisp to tuck yourself into. Anyway, get in touch on Twitter at Real Stevens and at Sigma Sports if you have any grand chores suggestions using the hashtag hashtag grand chores. And don't forget, it's a great time to upgrade to ultimate performance with ceramic speed. Order an OSPW system at Sigma Sports throughout June and get a free, yes, a free ceramic speed UFO chain. So just head to sigmasports.com forward slash podcast for all the details. Thanks again to Perry App Gwyneth for the musical jingles on the podcast. And thanks to you as ever for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe and rate the pod. And why not recommend it to your cycling buddies or even your Amazon delivery person the next time they hang around your doorstep too long. And finally, I'd like to thank our magnificent guest today, Philippa York, um, for, well, basically what was a wonderful chat, and hopefully we can do it again very soon. Uh, what? Hold on a minute. Pip, Pipper, is that you? What, what on earth are you doing? That's me struggling with a recalcitrant Allen keyboard on my 42 chainring, which I want to get rid of for my famous, and now even more famous, 41 tooth Campag inner ring. Oh, Fair enough. Oh, cheers. Anyway, thanks. <laughs>